0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Carrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7 as we continue to move forward in our study of Luke's Gospel Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be beginning, verses 1 through 10. We talk about three testimonies. We look at this world today, there's much turmoil going on, isn't there not? Uh, You hear phrases like, uh, keep the faith or have faith. But many times the question is, is, what is that faith in? Typically it's about faith about in myself or about a politician or in some type of organization or philosophy. But I'm here to share with you this morning as we look at Luke chapter 7, is, is faith is important. The question is what to have faith in. Now, as we come back to Luke after a two-week break, we want to remember that Luke is writing an orderly account of Jesus' life and ministry that's been gathered from the different various eyewitnesses' accounts to Theophilus. In doing so, he wants to instill a confidence in, uh, to his Gentile readers Uh, that Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God and has been anointed by the Father to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the Lord's ministry, and Luke is trying to capture that so that the Gentiles and those who did not uh, see Jesus' ministry up front and personal can understand and have confidence In what he's writing, now two weeks ago we finished Jesus' Jesus' sermon on the on the plain, where he called his disciples to a higher standard of conduct and attitude, befitting those that are sons of the Most High God and citizens of the kingdom of God. To enter that kingdom, one must have a new heart that comes as a gift by the Holy Spirit. New attitudes and new actions are the proof and evidence that one is a genuine Christian. The death and resurrection of Christ was the price of a mission into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is now calling for the sons of the Most High to swear allegiance to this new relationship through worship and obedience. Today, as we come to Luke chapter 7... Luke is now transitioning as he puts Jesus into the, uh, is putting into practice, I should say, Jesus is putting into practice the teachings from the Sermon on the Plain and his pronouncement to set at liberty the captive, the oppressed, and hurting through the preaching of the good news of the gospel, as he now begins to travel around the countryside, ministering to various human needs in the next few chapters as we continue through this gospel. Now in today's passage, Jesus is going to show compassion to one who many would consider a Gentile oppressor or a representative of an oppressive regime by healing his servant and commenting on that Gentile's faith. So with that, take your Bibles and look at Luke chapter 7 if you would with me. We're going to read just those first two verses as an introduction. Luke writes, and after he had finished all his sayings, speaking of Jesus, in the hearing of the people, that Jesus entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the life of the centurion and this servant who is, who is sick. Father, their 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 life, this moment of the snapshot of their life is is now captured for eternity here in the pages of scripture. So with it is here for us to read, to understand, and to seek what you would have us learn from it. So open up our minds and hearts, Lord, that we may see your word, and we may gather encouragement, a challenge, and maybe a word of rebuke, and uh, that we must need to follow. We pray that you bless us during this time in your name. Amen. Now Luke sets up this scenario as Jesus once again visits Capernaum, a city that we've read much about earlier in Luke. He writes that a centurion had a servant that was in desperate need of healing. Luke points out that the servant was at the point of death and that he was also highly valued by the centurion. This is not something that's uncommon. In those days, uh, a servant would be almost like part of the family, uh, even of a high ranking official or powerful rich people. And many times they were very much valuable to them. Now a centurion is a military commander that oversees 100 men. Hence the word centurion, centi, uh, the, 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 word, the Roman word for, for 100. And it's usually under a Roman commander. However, this centurion was most likely attached to the service of Herod Antipas, the Jewish king. Now his servant is sick. And Luke notes that the centurion highly values this servant and he seeks his well-being. So we continue in verse uh, 3 with the narrative when Luke writes, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Somehow and somewhere, the ministry of Jesus had come to the attention of this centurion. We are not given the particulars of the what, the how, or to what extent he knew about Jesus, but it seemed to be enough that he was convinced that Jesus could help his servant. Recognizing the sensitivities between the relationships of the Jewish and Gentile population, he sends some of the Jewish elders of the city with his request for Jesus to heal his servant. So here we come to the first testimony, as we come, that comes from the Jewish elders who declare of the centurion in verse 4 and 5, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, the Jewish elders pleaded with Jesus, earnestly saying that this man is worthy to have you do this from him. He is worthy for you to do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who has built us our synagogue. Well, in their view, the centurion had earned the right to have his request honored by Jesus. The justification for the request is tied to his actions in building a synagogue in Capernaum. Now, this would not have been abnormal, but a shrewd move by any military or political leader of that time. He had actually won the hearts of the people by providing a place for them to meet for worship and religious instructions. In verse 6, we read that Jesus responded positively to their request. And he begins to walk and travel to the centurion's home. Look with me as we continue in verse 6. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, speaking of the centurion's house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, this is remarkable at its face. Ordinarily, Jews would not consent to going to a Gentile's home, for that would make them ceremonially unclean. And they would chaff at any order from a Roman officer, military officer, especially from one that would represent King Herod, who many believed was an illegitimate king. He was not even a a Jew. Yet Jesus doesn't seem to hesitate to honor the centurion's request to heal his servant. However, once the centurion receives the news that Jesus is actually traveling, coming to his house, he quickly sends out his friends to Jesus that he has no need to come to the house. It is here that we see the second testimony and this one from the centurion's own mouth in the last part of verse six. Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my house. The Jewish leader says, no, he's worthy. But the centurion's own own testimony of himself, says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. In his view, he's not worthy to have Jesus come to his home, nor for him to appear before Jesus personally. Again, though we do not know all of what the centurion knew of Jesus, or saw of his ministry personally, he recognized that there was something special, maybe even supernatural about Jesus and his ministry. We see this clearly as we come to verse seven. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, he says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Think of that once again. He says, just say the word. You don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and he would be healed. For I am a man too set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, this centurion was a man who knew and understood authority. He understood that Jesus had the authority to heal his servant without stepping one foot in his home or even seeing or viewing the servant. There's no need to lay hands. There was no need for a special cloth, for special water. It was just Jesus' words that was necessary. He understood the power, the authority of Jesus. Just say the word. Now here's what comes remarkable. Is that this attitude and this thought process, his way of thinking of the centurion, causes Jesus to speak his testimony concerning the centurion. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Now think about it. Jesus, the son of God, right? The second person of the Trinity. He's been walking the earth now maybe 30 years, 31 years or so. He knows, he's seen everything under the sun. He, 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 He holds up, upholds it with his hands. He created all things. But he said, and he marvels at his man. He takes a moment to look at him. It means it's wonder, it's amazement. There's something about this man that draws Jesus' attention and takes him to pause for a moment. He says, turning to the crowd that followed him, Jesus tells them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus declares that the faith of the centurion was greater than any that he encountered in Israel. Though we are not told the reaction of the crowd at this declaration, I would imagine that it would not have gone over very well. In verse 10 we read, And when those who had been sent returned back to the house, they found the sermon well. Jesus did exactly what was requested of them. Exactly what the centurion expected. Just as the Satyrian declared, there was no need for Jesus to come to his house. Jesus healed the servant with just a word, with just a thought Be healed. Now, what is interesting in Luke's narrative is the fact that the healing of the servant is almost incidental. It's almost an, an afterthought that's about this passage. It's not really the emphasis of this narrative. I would like to express three points about Jesus' ministry that you and I can learn from the centurion's request for healing for his servant. For what we see here is something more about these testimonies. The first thing that I noticed here is that we see in Luke's narrative here is that Jesus' ministry extends over time and space and ethnic boundaries. Jesus' ministry extends over time and Space and ethnic boundaries. In this narrative, Jesus' proclamation of liberty, of healing, and salvation is now extended to the Gentiles. It was at first just thought for the Jews, but now we see it's extended past time. It doesn't matter when it is. It doesn't matter what the location is or how far apart it is or even the ethnic boundaries. Jesus can extend his ministry beyond all of those. The Gentiles, though considered outside of the promises of God, it is now extended to them as well. The surprising part of this narrative isn't that Jesus healed the servant. We've seen Jesus heal and do many miraculous wonders. Luke has already pointed out the power of Jesus to heal every type of diseases. But the fact that Jesus did so on the behest, or the behest of a Gentile, at the request of a Gentile. That Jesus does this is remarkable. Because even though the centurion was well thought of of by the Jews, he was still a Gentile outside of the promises of God. He was one that was serving the Roman oppressor and under the authority of the hated and despised King Herod. That He would actually travel to this man's house in the first, first place was odd and out of normal. In that it was not acceptable for a Jew to visit the home of a Gentile, as I said earlier, it would make him ceremonially unclean. Yet, Jesus responds with the compassion, or responds with compassion for the centurion's plea for his servant's life. This narrative shows that the distance. Whether location, geography, or ethnic or political separation does not inhibit or diminishes Jesus' power to minister and heal. We learn that the good news that Jesus was anointed to proclaim is also for the Gentiles. It is for all people, for all times. Number two, as we see that Jesus' ministry exposes the thoughts of the heart. It exposes the thoughts of the heart. Now, as we read Luke's narrative, we see that the perception and evaluation of the centurion through three testimonies. Centurion there is, is in the middle. He's the center of the focus, and you hear three testimonies about this man. Again, as a matter of review, we saw that the Jewish leaders, they said he is worthy, but his worthiness was based on his works for them. As is common for most of us, we evaluate others by what they have done for us. Most of our friendships and partnerships with others are based on a thought pattern in which we gauge their worth by all sorts of different criteria that is usually based on how they make us feel, help us in our work, make our life easier. How beneficial beneficial they are in our pursuit of our own happiness. This is the case with marriages, why we see them, uh, why we see divorces, why we see family broken up, why we see people uh, in their jobs uh, uh, angry or frustrated in relationships here near, near and wide is because most of the way in which we have our friendships is based on what do they do for me? How do they make me feel? And we're quick to pull the plug when it turns negative. In this case, the Jewish elders asked Jesus to help the centurion, not because he was a man in need, but because he had helped them through his patronage, through his, through his money, through the way he had, he had helped them build this synagogue, the money and the labor that was spent. So that's how their view, that was the testimony of him. He is worthy based on his works for us. The centurion his evaluation perception of himself was based on his knowledge of himself. I am not worthy, he says. The centurion understood that there was something special about Jesus. And he demonstrates his humility and meekness in declaring that he's not worthy to come for Jesus to come to his house. Now remember this, this man would have been at the top of the food chain in Capernaum. Here, he was the man with the 100 hardened, strong men at his disposal to go when he says go, to come when he says come, to do whatever he pleases. But yet he declares to Jesus that he understands authority. He knows that he is the top dog in the region. His word is law, yet he humbles himself in his request to Jesus. What a wonderful picture of meekness. Again, you and I, many times the world thinks of meekness, that humbleness as a a weakness, but yet that's power and strength that's under control. Just as Moses has said, was the meekest man on the earth. Jesus was a man who was meek. We are called to be meek. When he sees Jesus, he says, I'm not worthy. But would you please hear my prayer? But the other way that Jesus many exposes the thoughts of the hearts is we see Jesus here. When he looks at the man's faith, he has a testimony. Jesus marveled, wondered, and was amazed at the man's faith in verse 9. He remarks out loud for all of his followers to hear that this man's faith was greater than those he had encountered in Israel including those that were walking around him, even the men that were chosen to be his disciples, as you can hear them, saying, this man has greater faith than than all of you. This would not have gone over well with them, I would believe. By recognizing that Jesus has the authority and the power to heal his servant with just a word, he had faith. The centurion expresses a faith that moves Jesus to action. Theologian Walter Liefeld comments that the Ceturian has faith that Jesus' authoritative word will accomplish the healing. Jesus has the authority. He believed it with all of his heart. And indeed, Jesus does heal the servant without taking one step closer to this man's home or to the servant. Overall, I would say that that is important to consider that you and I must recognize that it doesn't matter what others think about us. There could be many people who could say, oh, he is worthy based on how well you have treated him. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It only matters what Jesus thinks. Now, that should be a word of encouragement to you, but also maybe a word of rebuke. See, we live in a day of age when we evaluate one's worth, by their actions, maybe by the color of skin, political persuasion, maybe social status. Maybe now today it's intersectionality and other types of factors. However, what you and I need to recognize is that Jesus evaluates us in a whole different manner, a whole different way. His ministry extends to people of all nations, all tribes and tongues, all talents and abilities. His church includes people of every color, ethnicity, and society. And I will add that it's important and it's a good thing for Christians to be well thought of by others. I don't want to say here that uh, the Jews were wrong in their perception of this man. The centurion had done a good job in winning their hearts. In the same way, you and I ought to as well. We should be well thought of by others. One of the requirements of an elder found in Titus is that they must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The apostle, apostle uh, Peter excuse me, calls believers to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorably so that when they speak against you as an evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now we're living in a day and age that's it's here and coming even more so where that's going to be more and more difficult. Where our beliefs in the Bible, that the way that we believe the Bible teaches is going to put us at odds with the world. But still our conduct must be one that of meekness and love and kindness compassion for others. But this thought of keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable should never lead us to be preoccupied with trying to earn our salvation by good works and self-righteousness or believe that we could uh, appease God by just our good works. Scripture also calls us to be meek and humble, to have the mind of Christ, to recognize that we are not worthy Of Christ's mercy. But yet it's through God's love and mercy that he gives us his grace. Yet even our meekness. And here's the warning. Yet even in our meekness we can find its source in pride. If we are not careful. There are many who practice a type of humbleness and meekness. When in fact they are prideful. They think that their self-sacrifice and their humble spirit qualifies them for the kingdom. When in reality they are far from it. They find themselves to be Pharisees who put on airs that they were humble and make yet their pride shown through. So, not only does Jesus' ministry expose the thoughts of the heart, but we also see that Jesus' ministry exalts the faith of believers. It exalts the faith of believers. Jesus responds to the centurion's request to heal his servant, not because of the Jewish elders' testimony nor to the centurion's testimony, but because of the centurion's faith that Jesus had the authority to heal without personally visiting his home or seeing the suffering servant. It was not the faith that the Jewish leaders had in the centurion, nor in the meekness of the centurion. You see, and here's the key if you're taking notes. The key to this man's faith was the object of his faith. It wasn't in the, 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 the testimony of the Jewish leaders. It was not in the testimony of himself, but his self, but his his faith, the key to his faith, was in the object of his faith. And that was in Jesus, in his authority, and his power. As a man of authority, he understood how authority worked. He knew that Jesus had that authority. He knew that Jesus had that power. He knew that Jesus could and would heal. The problem with many today is that their faith is in the wrong person, in the wrong thing, or the wrong view. You see, our faith is not to be in a particular politician, or a political party, or in some type of practical philosophy. But in the personage of Jesus Christ. Scripture warns us that without faith, it is impossible to please Him for who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So you and I must understand that we cannot please God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So as we hear that, we must bring our attention to that. If it's impossible to please him, then what is faith? We must understand, what does the Bible say faith is? So many, they have faith and say, well, keep the faith, hold the faith. Just have more faith. But they don't understand the description, the definition of biblical faith. For scripture informs us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Now, very clearly, the centurion before this verse was ever written must have understood this. For he had the assurance of things hoped for. Heal my servant. He had the convictions of things not yet seen. Jesus, heal with a word. The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, For by it, speaking of faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here at OVC, we have further defined faith as a confident trust in the character of God, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We confidently trust that God will be faithful to his promises, that he is a good and wise and sovereign ruler of all things. We we trust in him that all things will accomplish to his glory and for our good. Only God is the worthy object of our worship and of our praise and our trust, and He promises never to forsake us, to make us into the image of God, and to redeem us from our sins, and to prepare a place for us when we will where we will be with our God, where He will be our God, excuse me, and we will be His people. So, where's your faith this morning? Is it in yourself? Is it in the testimony of, of others? Or is it in the testimony of, of Christ who looks upon us and says, here's a man, here's a woman of faith? And you and I must recognize that faith is not something that you and I can conjure up ourselves. It is a something that is assigned by God. It is something which God gives us. This is a faith that God honors. This is a faith that he calls us to. This is a faith that he gives us as a gift. In Ephesians, the apostle Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not just salvation as a gift, but the faith in which it enables us and leads us to salvation is the gift. It's not a result of works so that no man may boast. This centurion, in some way, in some fashion, knew that he cannot boast in his good works, in his position, in what he had done for the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people. For now I am not worthy. That's the beginning of true faith. To centur- the centurion's faith in the authority and power of Jesus to heal brought him the approval of Jesus, the healing of his servant but also to the attention of all those who will read his plea for help. For it is now captured in the word of God for all eternity for us to read, to be encouraged, and maybe even to rebuke. For what is your faith in this morning? Do you believe in the power and the authority of Christ? Even today, many are frustrated, upset, discouraged, wondering where is this country going? What, what, what's happening next? What's going to be shut down next? Will we ever get back to some type of normal? Or what will new normal look like? We've put our faith in the wrong things. And the faith that we put into our gods, small g, have failed us, as they will each and every time. For our faith must be in the wise, good Sovereign King. Now, as we come to a close this morning, there's just a few things I would like to encourage and challenge you from this passage. Number one, never doubt that your requests are too hard, difficult, or out of reach for Jesus. His power and authority extends, extends past any barriers that we, have, we or others have put in place. He hears our requests and he desires to bless his children. Number two, we should adopt the worship and mindset of the centurion who humbled himself and recognized the authority of Jesus. And we should approach God with our quest, not with pride or with an attitude that God owes us, but with the mindset that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And lastly, number three, our faith needs to be grounded In the person and in the work of Christ, in the character and the wisdom of the Trinity. Our prayer should be that God would give us a greater measure of faith. And so, in these quick Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10, as we look at the three testimonies, we just want to share with you quickly this morning. Would you put your faith in that of Christ? If not, would you do so today? Don't delay. When the testimonies of others are good; we should have them speak well of us. But in the end, it has no eternal value. Our own attitude, whether it's a one of meekness or of pride, is of no value other than if it leads us to the true measure of faith, and that of Jesus. It's the testimony of Jesus that matters for eternity. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to take, want you to take a moment to pause, to consider. To pray and respond to God's word. In this short message, and I know it was shorter than normal, I want to encourage you, what type of faith do you have this morning? Is it based on others, what others think of you? Is it based on just your own thoughts? Or is it based on Christ? I pray that that you would grow in your measure of faith. If you're here this morning you do not know the gospel, you do not know if you would spend eternity in heaven, Would you please don't leave today before you could find out? Come to me. Love to share with you in a few moments how you too can know that Christ is the King and faith in him will bring you to eternity. Without faith is impossible to please him. Landon was not able to be with us here this morning and it was his turn to give the pastor's prayer. So with that, he asked, he uh, printed that or he typed it out and printed it out Send it to me and ask me to pray on his behalf. So what I'm going to give you this morning is our prayer from land and our pastor prayer. Again, that's where we pray on, the, on behalf of uh, the pastor prays on the behalf of the church and its people. And so with me, if you just bow your heads for a moment and let's go to prayer. Our loving and unchangeable God, this last week have, has been tumultuous. We have heard predictions of doom. We have seen hypocrisy. We have felt betrayal and loss and uncertainty, but dear OVBC, as, in, as the fear, the pain, the anger, the ritual, and hate has amplified day after day, we must remember that we are Christians. Literally, we are little Christ, and we've been called to something truly a revolutionary, biblical love. The world cries, you are on this other side of the political divide. You are all that is wrong with our nation. But Christians declare that we are all sinners in need of grace. The world cries, there is no room for change. Opponents must be silenced and removed. But Christians declare, such were some of us. But we've been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord and by the Spirit of our God. That grace is crying out to us today. The world cries, "To cries, if you will not listen to my peaceful protest, then I will, make, I will use violence to make you listen. But Christians declare, if you strike me on the right cheek, I will turn to you the other also. And reply, I love you. The world cries, I want nothing to do with friends and family who think differently. If you don't agree with me, I will cut you out of my life. But Christians declare, I have prepared a meal for my enemies. Come and eat with me. I love you and I pray for you. Dear OVBC family, spend this week dwelling on those words and let them sink deep in your heart. We are called to love those who hate us and not just because it's nice to do so and we're to be nice people but we are called to love those who hate us because God loved us while we hated him. And as Christ taught us to pray, we forgive those who trespass against us because God has forgiven our trespasses against him. We just pray that we would live out the type of radical love that God has called us to. This is a fountain, a fountain which uh, all radical Christian love springs when we recognize that it's Lord's will that needs to be done, not our own. So we pray, Lord, that you'd give us strength to love you this week, to love our neighbors. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.